At this time, I invite you to turn over in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, second chapter of the book of 1 Timothy. Now, if you've been here with us lately, you'll know that we are almost done with our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. But I decided to wait to finish that series until just after the new year. For today's Christmas service, I want to take us to a different letter that Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, and to focus in on one short text that I hope will stir our love for Jesus as we near Christmas. So the text I want to focus in on today is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and it'll be up on the screen today. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, that short text contains some of the most foundational teaching of the Christian faith, as well as some of the most encouraging news in the Bible. And it also highlights one of the most important aspects of the Christmas story, which is that the Son of God took on human flesh to pay for our sins and to bring us to God. There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, what I want to do today is very simple. I want to highlight the five lines that are laid out there on the screen and then to pause and to think about each one for a few moments together. Now, for most of this sermon, we're going to go in order. But I want to start with the central line of that text, the man, Christ Jesus. At the heart of the passage is the humanity of Jesus. And at the heart of this season is the humanity of Jesus. Christmas is about the Son of God becoming a human being. We celebrate every Christmas that God became man. We celebrate, we sing, we sang of the incarnation. Some of the songs use that language. A song we didn't sing, Hark the Herald. It says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. This passage celebrates that very thing. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I want to also say that Paul clearly affirmed and celebrated the deity of Jesus Christ as well. From the opening verses of this letter, if you looked at it, you would see Paul affirming the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is co-equal with God the Father. And that is a huge part of what qualifies Jesus to be able to do what he did, to be able to be the mediator between God and men. But in our text today, Paul draws our attention especially to the humanity of Christ. One God, one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. So so I want to think about why the humanity of Christ is so important. Why did God become man? Now, much more could be said than I'm going to say today. But I want to highlight three things that I think are relevant to this passage. First, we needed a human being because we needed someone 
to represent us and to bring us to God. Okay, that idea is woven throughout the whole story of the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's seen most clearly, I think, in the institution of the priesthood in Israel. Human beings are sinners. And so we need someone else to bring us to God. God ordained priests in the Old Testament, especially the high priest, to do this, to bring sinners to God. They were chosen from among the people so that they could represent the people, so they could understand the people, and so they could bring the people to God. We needed a human being to do that for us. But Paul also understood that Adam, the first man, represented us all. In Adam, we all died. Through Adam, the human race fell. He brought sin, death, and condemnation. But God's plan from the very beginning was to raise up a second Adam, a second man, a better Adam, a better man. And that man was the man, Christ Jesus. Instead of bringing sin and death and condemnation, he came to bring life, righteousness, and justification. We also needed a human being because that was what God promised to send. God promised to send a Messiah, a Christ, who could save us. And throughout the Old Testament, it was clear that the Messiah would be a human being. When Paul calls Jesus the Christ, he's tapping into that promise. He's the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king. From Genesis on, God's promise to, was, was to raise up a man, a seed from the woman, a son of Abraham, a son of David, to save us. The king would need to be the son of God and the son of man. And that king was the man, Christ Jesus. And I'd say third, when I think about this text, we needed a human being because the way that this man would save us would be by dying. The son of God became man so that he might die. We'll, more, we'll say more on that later. But I would say up front that Christmas and the cross always go together. Over the cradle in Bethlehem lies the shadow of the cross. The Son of God took on human flesh so he could die for our sins. Okay, that's, that's just some thoughts about the, the middle line. I want to go back line by line, starting with the first line. <clears throat> for there is one God. Now, for anyone familiar with Judaism or the Bible okay, as a whole, this is one of the most foundational claims, maybe the most foundational claim in the Old Testament. It's often referred to as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From the opening pages of the Bible to its close, God proclaims this message. There is only one true God. And this one God is the creator and sustainer of all people. Okay. Now, if you think about what this text in the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. What is the implication of that that's drawn out in the Old Testament? Usually, 
It's that this means that all of our worship and all of our deepest devotion must go exclusively to the one true God. And think back to that text, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Paul, of course, believed that, taught that same thing. But it is interesting, and it's been interesting to me, to look at the places where Paul actually references the Shema, the idea that the Lord is one, and to see what he emphasizes. He does emphasize he, the Lord deserves all our love, but he actually highlights something else more in the text he talks about it. What do I mean? What does he emphasize? Okay, I'm going I'm to read a text for you from Romans 3 and see if you can figure it out. What is Paul connecting to the idea that there's only one God? This is from Romans 3. Paul asks a question. Is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes. He's the God of the Gentiles too. Why? Since there is one God. What implication do you think Paul draws from this core belief that there's only one God? If there's only one God, that one God must be for all people. You see, Paul often dealt with people who thought they had an exclusive claim on God, namely his fellow Jews. In fact, I think Paul himself acted and thought that way in his own past in many ways. But what does Paul see now? Since there's only one God, he is the God of all people. Okay, think about this a little more. The one God is the creator of all people. The one God is the sustainer of all people. The one God cares about all the people he's made. That one God who is love, loves all people. The one God who loves to save, desires all people to be saved. There is no person or ethnicity that does not owe their existence to the one God. And there is none that God does not care about. They, they may deny the one true God, but God is still their rightful God. God is still their creator, even if they deny him. God is still their sustainer, even if they hate him. The one God is the God of all. Now, you, you might be thinking, is that how relevant is that to this text? Is it relevant to this text? Yes. Okay. To see it, I want you to look at the verses before our passage. Okay. And I want you to look especially at the use of the word all. Okay. Think of the word one and the word all. Okay. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, 
I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our God is the God of those with power and those without it. He's the God of the Jew and of the Gentile, the rich and the poor, the old and the young, all men, all women. God is the God of the sinners who know they're big sinners and of the sinners who think they're not sinners. And we should pray for all of them, for the salvation of all. Why? Paul would say, that's beautiful and pleasing in the sight of God when you ask him to save these people. Why? Why is that so beautiful in God's sight? Because It's because that is the heart of God. For all the people that he has made, our God is a God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth about his son. And did you see what the very next line in that text says? Verse 5, for there is one God. There is one God for all people. The one God loves all people, desires all people to be saved and to come to know the truth, the truth about who they are, but even more the truth about who Jesus is. And just to be clear, Paul did not believe or teach that this meant all people would be saved in the end. Nowhere does Paul teach that. He certainly did not live that way. But Paul adamantly affirmed the heart of God for all people. And Paul demonstrated that same heart, both in his relentless mission work and in his fervent prayers as he would pour out his heart again and again, especially, he says, for his fellow Jews who often hated him and despised Jesus. He pled for them throughout his entire life as a Christian and rarely saw them come to know Jesus. But he had the heart of God for them. And we saw the same thing about God's heart in, this, in the New Testament reading from John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. But then what does the text go on to say? Whoever believes in the son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. God is right to judge, and God will judge but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. We were already condemned. God did not send his son to condemn. God sent his son to save. Why? Because that is what is in the heart of God.
the one true God who desires all people to be saved. Now to the next phrase. And there is one mediator between God and men. Now we've already touched on a couple things about this, but I want to talk about two more things from that line. One is the word one in that line. Okay. When Paul says in the previous line, there's only one God. I think he's highlighting the one God's desire for all to come. It's an emphasis on inclusivity in the best sense of the term. But when Paul says that there's only one mediator, he's emphasizing what? That there is only one way to come to God. And that is through the one mediator. In other words, this is an emphasis on exclusivity in the right sense of the term. Our one God is a God who desires all to be saved, but salvation comes only one way, God's way. The only way to God is through the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus could not have been clear about this in his own ministry. And think of Jesus' famous words from John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So Christmas is about inclusivity in that Christ is a gift for all people. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But Christmas is also about exclusivity in that Christ is the only way to God. You get to God God's way or no way at all. And if there were any other way, Christ would not have come. The other thing I want to touch on is the word mediator itself. What is a mediator? That is a person who goes in between two parties and tries to bring them together, or at least to some kind of resolution. <clears throat> okay, perhaps there's a financial disagreement between two parties. Maybe a family is splitting up or something like this. And so they get a mediator involved. And the mediator helps both parties come to some kind of agreement, arrangement. Okay. But it's interesting that a mediator in, in cases today is rarely invested heavily in the people. In fact, you probably don't want that. You'd likely want a detached mediator, someone who's not so connected to the people involved. You'd want like a neutral third party in most cases today. But when we think about Jesus as the mediator between God and men, this is where you think some of the things about today apply and some of them don't. On the one hand, Jesus is the mediator in that he brings two parties together. He's the go-between, the intermediary between God and men. That's, that connects to how we use the word mediator today. But there are other ways in which Jesus' role as a mediator is completely different than what we do today. Jesus is not a neutral third party. He is heavily invested in both parties. I mean, Jesus loves his father. 
and he loves us. And not only that, Jesus' role in bringing the two parties together is not to negotiate between the two. For one thing, the fault in this situation lies entirely with one party and not at all with the other. The fault lies entirely with men. That's why there's a problem between God and men. Jesus knows this. And for another thing, the desire to deal with the division lies entirely with one party and not at all with the other. Only God wanted reconciliation. And for a final thing, the divide between God and men cannot be handled by negotiation. Mere words could never bring the sides together. Instead, the mediator in this case, to bring them together, needs to identify fully with the guilty party and pay their debts in full. And the cost of that would be blood. The blood of a faultless mediator. And there's only one of those. There's only one who could or would be willing to pay that price. And that leads into the fourth line of the text that says that the mediator gave himself as a ransom for all. That sums up the work of Christ on the cross. What was Christ doing on the cross? He was giving himself as a ransom for all. That is the cost of our reconciliation with God. It cost the blood of the mediator. And Jesus gave that blood not reluctantly. He gave it willingly. He gave himself for all. And notice the use of the word ransom. What does that imply? Behind that is is the idea throughout Paul's writings that we were all slaves. Slaves to sin, held captive under the powers of darkness, and Jesus paid the ransom to free the slaves. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. And one of the things that you realize as you read the Gospels is that Jesus knew that this was his mission. This is why he came. In fact, the language of this text, I think Paul draws right from the mouth of Jesus. Because Jesus himself is the first one to talk this way. He, he described his mission this way. Mark 10, 45, he told his disciples, you need to serve each other. Why? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to do what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross was always the mission. That's why Christ became a man. And that's why I said earlier, Christmas and the cross always go together. Even over the cradle in Bethlehem lies the shadow of the cross. The Son of God took on human flesh so he could die for his people. So he could pay the ransom to set the prisoners free. And this brings us to the last line, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That line is not the most important line 
of the text, but I think it's probably the least clear. In fact, I think if you looked at people that encourage people to memorize this, they might just cut off the last line because it's not entirely clear how it connects. Okay. Paul just adds something at the end of this great text, the testimony at the right time. That's basically all it says. The testimony at the right time. And I don't plan to spend much time on this, but it's, it's easy to ask questions about that, about that line. Like, whose testimony is Paul talking about? What is the testimony about? Why does Paul say at the proper time? Okay. In short, there are a few ways you could understand that. I'm just going to share what I think. Okay. I think Paul is talking about God's testimony. God's testimony to us of what? of how much he really wants to save us. Okay. If that's going in the right direction, the last line says something like this. The cross where Christ gave himself as a ransom for all is God's testimony to us, given at just the right time, that God truly desires all people to be saved. I mean, think about it. Paul introduced those two verses with the claim that God desires all people to be saved. How do you know that's true? How do you know that God really wants all people to be saved, to come to him? The answer to that is look at the man Christ Jesus. Look first at his incarnation. Look at how the Son of God took on our flesh. Look at what he did. Behold the man, Christ Jesus, lying as a baby in the manger. What is God's proof of his heart to save? But Christ's incarnation. Look first at that and then look at the cross. Look at how Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Behold the man, Christ Jesus, hanging as our substitute on the tree. This is what? This is God's testimony. This is God's proof to us that God really desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Both Christmas and the cross are the evidence of the heart of God for all sinners. God did not send his son into the world to condemn. God sent his son into the world so that the world could be saved through him. So, what should we do with what we've heard today? One, come. God wants you to come. God says to you, come all who are thirsty. I'll give you water for free. Christ says to you, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God wants you to come. The cradle and the cross both say, come. But remember, you must come to God on his terms, his way. God's way is through the one man, Christ Jesus. You must come to God through him.
forsaking all other options, all other lords, all other trusts, and confessing only Christ can save me. Only Christ is Lord. You must come that way or you will never get to God. For there's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Two, pray. Behind the text, I think the reason Paul wrote the text was to challenge people to pray. To pray for whom? To pray for all people from the greatest to the least, from the most likely in your mind to come and the least likely to come. To pray for all those you know and care about. To pray for what? For them. To pray that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. To pray that they might come to the waters and drink. That they may look to Christ and live. Three, proclaim. Do we believe that God's heart is inclined toward saving sinners? Do you believe that God wants to save people? If you believe that, we should probably tell more people the good news about Jesus. Do we believe that faith in Christ is the only way for any of them to be saved? If we believe that, we should probably call more people to trust him, especially in our culture. Why not tell people about Christ over Christmas? I mean, the holiday is named after him. Why not pray? Why not ask? Why not speak? And then lastly, praise. Thank Christ for coming to save you and praise God the Father for sending him to do it. And I draw that application straight from Paul in the text before this. When Paul thought about how Christ had come to save not just the world, but to save him specifically, what did it lead Paul to do? I want to read Paul's testimony and challenge us to do it. 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I'm going to read this text as our closing thing. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the love, with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas and the cross and how they go together and display to us your desire to save us. And I pray that today as this word has gone out, that your spirit will press it in deeply to our hearts, that those of us who don't know Christ will come, and that those of us who do will be stirred to thankfulness, to to boldness, to prayer. Lord, would you keep these words on our minds and in our hearts over this Christmas holiday? We thank you for Jesus. In his name we, ask, we pray these things. Amen.